You can have a seat. Welcome, guys. Would you pray with me before we start? Father, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasure forevermore. We don't need to go seeking in different wells to find fulfillment and something to quench our thirst, although we do, and Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that. We're trying to drink from broken cisterns and trying to quench a thirst that only you can quench, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would again, afresh and anew, quench that thirst in us. May we experience your presence today in a fresh way. Lord, we ask ask that you would bless our new president, that you would bless the administration, that you would bless this country. Lord, that we would, as our former president from years past said, that we would honor the majesty of democracy, but more than that, we would honor you as our king, and we would honor the one that you put in office. You would help us as the church to distinguish the intricate details in the midst of all of this, and Lord, we ask that you would bring your peace in your church and let it flow outside. Lord, that it would flow into our streets and our neighborhoods, that we would be conduits of your peace and your mercy and your joy. We would show that our happiness is in the Lord. Would you do that good work, God? Maybe it start today. I pray in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Have you guys seen the uh, animated movie Trolls? If you have, say whoop. No, not too many people. It's a great movie. You guys should see it. If you have young kids, then maybe you've seen it. But there's this character in there. At the, um, his name is Bibli. I was watching it this week just in, in random. Desmond's wide-eyed looking at me because you know the movie, right, bud? And at the end of the movie, there's a character named Bibli, and he's a Bergen. And he's like, Bergens are basically like the personification of everything unhappy in the world. And this one particular Bergen, he asked this great question. He says, do you think that I can be happy? Do you really think that I can be happy? And I think that's a question that all of us ask, maybe are asking or have asked, or if it hasn't happened yet, we will ask. Do you really think I can be happy, me, Maybe it's just rhetorical or it's just to our own selves. Self, do you really think that you could be happy? Today's uh, sermon is titled Happiness because the word blessed here in this passage and the week before and, and in Hebrew, it more literally is translated happiness. Now that word has been kind of robbed of its weight and significance in our culture. Um... 
But all of us on some level are desiring a happiness. We're desiring to be happy. But happiness comes ironically. Happiness comes counterintuitively according to the Word of God. Jesus said in Luke 9.24, He said, Whoever would seek to preserve his life, to save his life, will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. In, in essence, that to find your life, you must lose it first. That's ironic. It's counterintuitive to what we want. And so the first point I have for us today is this. Fear of God is the prerequisite to his blessing. Fear of God is a prerequisite to true blessing. It's funny to talk about fear in a, a title of a sermon that's titled happiness because we see those things as mutually exclusive or maybe even you know diametrically opposed to one another. But the author of the passage here, he, uh, he doesn't seem to mind to put the two together. He doesn't seem to mind too much. He doesn't seem to think this is the case. He states it twice in the passage in verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. In verse 4, behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So we see fear as a central part of this passage. It's the application of our sermon, of what we need to hear today. It's what we need to do. It's what we need to understand so that we might do it. How do I fear the Lord? What is fear of the Lord? As a Christian, we know that fear is not some kind of this carnal sense of terror, right? We don't feel that dread. But turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews 12. And by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We, we have some in the back that you're welcome to uh, grab. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. Hebrews 12, chapter, or, sorry, chapter 12, verse 18 Quick side note, Jen, thank you so much for this handkerchief. She's so sweet. She got me a whole pack of handkerchiefs because every time I preach, my nose starts running, my eyes start watering, and um, I can't help it. So thank you, Jen. It's like one of the kindest things anyone's done for me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is alluding to Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Scott Revis, who read the passage today, he wrote the devotionals for this week. And one of the things he says in here, he, he points this out that um, Hebrews 12 uh, shows us that the purpose beyond, it shows us the purpose beyond fear. And it is this, you have come to God. The purpose, the reason for fear is to bring us to God, face to face with God. Who is this God? Moses trembled with fear. The Israelites said, I will not go. You go, Moses. Who is this God? Coming to God is no small matter. But that's exactly what Hebrews is telling us. You have come to God. Keep reading with me, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who, warn, or who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want to uh, give us an illustration here. I stole this from a friend of mine, Garen St. Clair. Uh, he was a, a, a member here at this church a couple years ago. He preached on the topic of fear a couple years ago. Um, I'm going to link this week. If you want to go back and listen to the sermon, it's great. I'm just going to totally rip the analogy that he used because it's been so helpful for me to understand uh, fear of God. So, but this is a bit of a um, an activity. So, here's what I need to do. I'm going to tell a story, but I'd like you to close your eyes and I'd like you to envision yourself as much as possible in this story. Okay? So, we close our eyes. You get off work. You're driving home, and you pull up in the driveway. You put the car in park. You turn off the keys, you get out of the car, it's a beautiful day, and you start walking up to the doorway of your house. You get out of your pocket, your keys, and you're just about to put them into the door of the house, and you hear something, it startles you, and so you turn around, and there at your feet is a cute little kitten. He's just sitting there. And so you kneel down to him, and he doesn't run away. And you get really close to him. You begin petting him, and your face gets really close to his face. And then all of a sudden, he gives you a little kiss on the nose. And then he scampers off, runs away. Okay, open your eyes. That was a pretty good experience, right? Like, we like that. That was nice. We like cats. Maybe we don't all like cats, but man, like, that would be cute. Okay, I'm going to do it one more time. So I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to tell the story one more time a little different. So you're on your way home from work. You pull into your driveway. You put the car in park. You turn off the car. You open the door. You close it. And then you hear something up in the sky. And you look up and you realize there's a helicopter going around in the sky. You don't think much of it. So you continue on to your door. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's another helicopter. Oh, there's, there's three helicopters in the sky. What's going on? You continue walking. Get your keys out of your pocket. You're about to go to your door, and then you, you feel your phone, your phone vibrate. And so you look at your phone, and all of a sudden there's an alert on your phone that says, stay inside. 
wild lion on the loose. You go to your door before you can think about anything that's happening and put together the pieces of the puzzle. You hear a noise behind you, it startles you, and you turn around, and there at the bottom of your driveway is a giant, ferocious lion. And his eyes are locked with yours, and he's crouching down. And before you can do anything, he begins to make his way towards you. And he's closing the gap between you and him 20 feet, now 10 feet, and then 5 feet, until he's right up on you, and he jumps on his hind legs and puts his huge paws over your shoulders and <laughs> gives you a giant lion kiss and slobber all over your face. And he jumps down and runs away. Okay, open your eyes again. Which one was the better experience? We all know that, like, man, it'd be cute to have a kitten, you know, lick my nose. It'd be kind of fun. It's cute. I mean, unless you're allergic to cats, I don't know. But, man, like, I mean, the kitten may make your day, right? But the lion experience would change your life. It would change your life. A lion just licked your face and ran off and you survived, right? It's a better experience. Why do you think the Bible describes God as a lion? It's perfectly clear that we are not to think of our God as a nice, cuddly, accommodating, man-centered God. No, guys, He is a consuming fire. He is ferocious. He will not be a means to your end. He refuses. You cannot wield him. You cannot tame him. He is a ferocious lion. The application for fearing God, for fearing God, is that we live with a saturated knowledge that we are not our own. We have lost that right. It's not ours to claim. Fear of God is not, it's not simply a nod to God's existence somewhere. No, it is a deep, overwhelming sense that God has brought me near to Him. That He's encountered me. And because I'm in His presence, I can do nothing else but obey Him. Fear of God is a reverential awe that takes God's authority seriously. This is what the psalmist means when he says, those who fear the Lord who walk in His ways. Who walk in His ways. When we talk about fearing God, we must, we must bring it down to what, it, what does this actually mean for us? We've got to put skin on it and then evaluate ourselves accordingly. It does no good for us to talk about the fear of God in some kind of you know, nebulous, ethereal type of way. It is idle to talk about the fear of God without obedience to what He commands. The point is, is this in this analogy is that you can, you can either run to Him or you can run from Him. But what you must not do today is dismiss Him. Is dismiss Him as nice. If you choose to run to him today, his promise to you is this. 
that he will encounter you. And in that encounter, it will alter the entirety of your life. This is the ultimate blessing that God wants for his church, for all people. This is the ultimate blessing, that they would encounter him on who he is, and it would alter them forever. Second point, the blessing of God is greater than what you and I want. The blessing of God is greater than what you and I want. What do I mean by this? I mean that no matter how great your desire is, no matter how pure your desire for happiness is, the kind of happiness, the kind of happiness that God wants for you and for me is always more and it is always greater in its form, in its quantity, in its quality. It is always more, it is always greater. In fact, God is often gratuitous with his blessings. I mean, we have more than we need. I'm thanking God in the evenings with my kids all the time. God, thank you for giving us what we need. But thank you for giving us more than we need. Thank you for giving us what we don't need. God is a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. He's not stingy. Now, I want you to hold on to that truth, right? What I just said with this hand. And then with the other hand, I want you to hold on to this. That Psalm 128 is not a utopian promise for you. It's just not. God is too good to allow you to have some kind of utopia here on earth. You see, Psalm 128 is about something far greater than you and I. It's greater than what you and I can have here. The blessing of God is hardly ever exclusively a personal thing. Second uh, Corinthians 9.11 tells us that you have been enriched in every way so that you might be generous in every way. It hardly just ends with us. The blessing of God goes beyond that. There's two parallels um, in this passage here. And um, it, it shows these two dynamics, these two dimensions. Alec Mortier, he, he describes this, and, and taking this from him, he, he says that there's this earthly dimension, and then there's this, um, uh, this spiritual dimension, this future heavenly dimension. So when it describes the family, I want to look at this in two parts, both an earthly family and a spiritual family. And I want us to see how, it, in both of these cases, it describes a personal aspect, but so much more for us than just what we get out of it. There's a blessing for both realities, but it's so much more. Than, so first with the earthly family. Um, let's read verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Both, or behold, thus shall be the man, shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Okay, so we have to remember that this is written to a, an ancient Hebrew culture. Uh, an agrarian society where having a lot of kids meant 
that you had a better likelihood of having a good life. Right? The more kids you had, the more hands you had to help on the farm, the more likelihood you had of having someone to take care of you when you're old and the guarantee of being able to hand off the family business when you were gone. And what's pictured here in Psalm 128 is this, it's this prospering, healthy family. The language is, is so positive. It's so incredibly positive. The blessing is characterized by success. A wife that bears many children and a well, uh, living well. But the picture represented here, I mean, it may cause you to stop for a second because it, it doesn't match reality a lot, does it? I mean, we all come from families, and we know families are broken. Some are very broken. For some of you, reading this passage, it conjures up images of joy and, 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 and joyful memories and present realities. You understand the fullness of a family, even in the midst of its brokenness, because of your experience that you have. Maybe you have a family of your own now, and you see the fullness of joy that comes from that. You see the blessing of God within that. It's a good gift to you from God. For others of us here today or online, reading this passage makes you feel resentment. What your mind conjures up is not hopefulness and joy and prosperity. It's heartache. It's loss. It's disappointment. It's possibly even envy towards others. Your experiences don't speak of the vitality of family. It speaks of the futility in it. What about you who never had a father or a mother or at least a good representation of one? What about you who hasn't married or you who hasn't been able to bring a baby into the world that you so longed for it. Or you whose marriage, which was once this thing that was good and healthy, is just ashes in your hand now. What about you? Are you the unfavored? Are you the exception to God's blessing? Context, I think, is helpful here. In this passage, Scott Sauls, he's a, um, he's a pastor in, uh, in Nashville at Christ Presbyterian Church. He shares this really helpful piece of um, information on the backstory and just kind of where this is written. So we just kind of understand, right? So when this was written, uh, a Jewish family had on average, on average four children. And then the mortality rate of infants was two. So, 50% on average of the children that God gave died. This is the context to which the writer is writing. This passage is not a utopian promise. Not for this earth. We will not experience the utopia that we long for here on earth because honestly, the best this world could give us is just temporary happiness. Let me offer you something here. Someone who fears the Lord, 
knows that everything he or she has comes from God. And he or she stays rooted at the foot of the cross. That nothing I, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come into the world, naked I shall return. The Lord give, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This, this posture comes from being rooted at the foot of the cross. I have nothing that I deserve, nothing that I've earned on my own. It's all a gift from God. If you would allow me to share just something I've learned as a, as a husband and a father in my short years as such. I believe this passage is practically um, what it means for us to to do this, to live at the foot of the cross. Husbands, wives, parents, your first responsibility is to model repentance. Your first responsibility. You're, you're probably familiar with Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, and we just celebrated last week the 530 anniversary of this. And the first Theses, if you don't know this, com- write this down, commit this to memory. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life. What may not be as familiar to you um, is some of his final words that were found on a scrap of piece of paper. And they were this, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. Martin Luther was not a perfect man, far be it, or far from it. He lived his life, however, at the foot of the cross. A place where his dependency could not be on anything but Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. And he said, my entire life must be this, repentance. Or I am unworthy of anything I have. God, you are good in giving it, but I don't deserve it. As a husband, there, there are things that I so wish for my wife, Ryan. Not things from her, like in a selfish manner, but like for her. Like, like the best parts of me want like the best things in her, right? Like, like a vine that is bearing much fruit. I want to see her flourish. To taste see the goodness of her Father, to cling tightly to her Savior, to walk boldly in the Spirit of God within her. But I don't get those things by demanding them from her. Right? Husbands, some of you need to stop hanging over your wife's head the list of commands from Scripture and instead demonstrate them to her so that, and listen, God and the Holy Spirit may transform her, not you. It is God who transforms. And wives, the same thing. Back to your husbands. It is God who transforms us. John Piper says this. He says, um, love your wife into loveliness. I love that language. Love your wife into loveliness. You want her to be lovely? Love her as if she's lovely. Isn't that what God does for us? Doesn't God first love us? And his love is so pervasive and so potent that it changes us 
I'm not a farmer, you guys probably know that. But one thing I know is that a, a plant does not bear fruit by me demanding it to do so. Right? I have to cultivate it. I have to water it. I have to love it in order for it to do so. Some of you don't understand that because you haven't seen it. You haven't, that hasn't been demonstrated to you in your life. But let me tell you, this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. This is what it produces in a person. We should understand the love of God in such a way that it produces in us this reverent awe, this reverent fear. See, the gospel, it brings us face to face with our sin. It shows us the worst of us. It shows us the depths and the heinous things inside of us. And then it tells us, even still, in that, Jesus died for me. It meets us right there at the worst of us. And we see the cost of his sacrifice, and it causes us to tremble. You know the hymn, um, Were You There? In church I grew up, the pastor always saying it all the time, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it makes me tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's this trembling that keeps us humble. It keeps us at the foot of the cross. And we see that loving our spouse does not actually look like being perfect for them. It doesn't look like, you know, having all the right answers for them. Most of the time, it looks like admitting that you don't. It's the same with our kids. I'm not sure which one's more difficult, to be honest with you, to admit that I'm wrong to my wife or to my kids. Both, I want to I be the hero. I want to be seen as the guy who has it together to, that they can look up to, that they can say, man, I want to be like him. But you know what? I'm not the hero. You're not the hero. There's only one hero. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. And I'm so amazed over and over and over again when I walk in repentance by the grace of God, my wife and my kids are so quick to forgive. I mean, so quick. I told our community group on Thursday of just something I had to repent to my son about. He's just like, it's okay, Dad. And it just breaks me every time. It breaks me. It's been the, God has been so gracious in using me in whatever meager thing I have and all my shortcomings. But this is the place of repentance. I'm not saying I'm perfect in it. There's many times I don't repent. I need to repent for my lack of repenting. But this is where we come back to over and over again. Why repent? It's because the fear of God pushes that in me. Not out of dread, not out of terror, but because when I see all that God has given me in Christ, it pushes me to say, I'm nothing. What do I have to hold up? What do I have to, to, to try to defend? I have nothing. God is everything. And we can point people to him. But there's a second and there's a greater dimension to all of this, and that is a spiritual family. 
Do you, do you know that um, less and less people are, are part of the church? Less and less people are part of the body of Christ? I don't, I don't mean that there's less Christians today. I don't, I don't know the studies on that. Um, I don't believe that to be true, but less and less people are part of the body of Christ, like the activity of the church. Why? Well, mostly we live in a, a post church culture, post-Christian culture, right? Meaning that there, there's not a lot of um, relevancy, you know, to the church. Like, why go? Why be a part of the church? In, um, in July, so just this past July, in the midst of this pandemic, uh, Barna Research Group, they did this study um, showing that during COVID-19, among those who are practicing Christians and, so, and who, who claim to be Christians, who identify as Christian, one out of three of them stopped going to church altogether, either in person or online. And that was July, so I'm sure it's even more so now. Um, Of those who go to church currently, or part of church online, or whatever the case may be, just over 50% go once a month. Once a month. The church is largely becoming irrelevant to our culture. There are many reasons for this, and I'm not here to, to talk about all those. Um, but here's the bottom line. Here's, here's what I just really believe is true, is true, is that there is no good reason for you to come to church. There's no good reason for you to attend a church service. I mean, we are drowning in options on how to attend church service. You can go on your phone and you can find a hundred different churches to attend that morning if that's what is it about. That's what it's about. There's got to be something more than just our attendance, either tuning in online or, or sitting here. There's got to be something more. We know that. We feel it in our bones. Man, there's got to be something more meaningful than this. And this is it. And I just, there's no simpler way to say it. It's that we don't attend church. We are the church. I mean, that's not some some kind of um, cliche, like, axiom that we want to, you know, push or something. It's, It's the truth of God's word. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are a unit. The body of Christ is a people. It's, it's a people that, were, that was purchased by Christ with his very own blood so that he might have us, so that he might obtain us. And we're told over and over again in the New Testament letters that this body has members, and the members are to contribute to the edifying and in the building up of God's church. Not to come and to sit in attendance in a service or online and receive from professionals, but to come and believe that I am blood-bought. I am a member of this body. And sometimes that's hard to remember especially if you feel sidelined in some of your experiences in an earthly family 
especially if you feel sidelined in some cultural aspects that you haven't married, you don't have kids. Whatever the case may be, culturally speaking, you may feel as if you don't fully fit in. Psalm 128.5, in the passage here, it says this, Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. We know that as Hebrews 12 said that Jerusalem is, 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 the city of Jerusalem is just a foreshadowing to the church today. And so if you read it correctly, this verse is about the prosperity, not of you, but of the blessing that you will receive as the church prospers. You see that? The blessing that you will receive, not for yourself, but as the church prospers, you receive that blessing. And so, man, my encouragement is that um, if you're, you're single here, you don't have children, you're online, you're not the exception to God's blessing. God has uniquely placed you where you are so that you may understand in a clearer form, in like high definition, this greater dimension of God's blessing. Yes, there are earthly blessings. God's good in giving those, but he's also good in withholding. God is good through and through. It may not be the entirety of God's purpose for you and your context and your setting and your situation, but it is no less than that. It is no less than that God has uniquely placed you so that you might see a clearer form of your spiritual family that you may not have physical children, but you have spiritual children. That you have a responsibility to the church to be able to raise up the next generation, to be able to see that generation follow after Christ. And I'll just admit that many times the church doesn't know how to do this well as a whole. We don't know how to care for singles well. We don't know how to care for people well that can't have children. And often you could probably feel sidelined. Let me tell you guys, if I could just ask for it, just press in, press in and say, I need help understanding my place and position in the body of Christ here at Cross Point downtown. Let us wrestle together in that. Have you ever thought about this, how kind it is that God came as a single man? How kind it is of God to do that. He could come as anything he wanted to. He chose to come as homeless and single, culturally outcasted in this time. Jesus had no problem saying that his true family were those who were following him, who he was going to shed his blood for so that they might become part of his spiritual family. And neither should you and I. We should have no problem saying that. The passage shows us that there is something beyond us. It's tugging us. It's wooing us to something here. And setting our eyes on the things of earth will only keep our eyes off of God. Said another way, those who fear God 
they keep their eyes on eternity. I got to go quick here because I'm over in time. The Lord bless you from Zion. The Lord bless you from Zion, verse 5. Zion obviously is a location, but it's more than that. It has a spiritual significance. It is a place where God dwells. It is a place where his blessing would flow out like rivers to the surrounding areas. It is where he resides. God has always sought to be near his people. He shows us all through, even in creation. You know, the whole reason God created man is so he could share himself with others, right? From Mount Sinai to coming down and meeting to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Jesus putting on flesh. In, in John 1, it says that Jesus uh, uh, came in, in flesh and he uh, put on flesh and he dwelt among us. That word dwell is literally tabernacled among us. He set up camp. It was purposeful. And then Jesus ascended to the Father. Before he did so, he promised the Holy Spirit would come so that we would have a relationship and a a connection with our Father forever. And then one day, this is all culminating here, the Spirit, by the Spirit, we anxiously, we eagerly await the day when we will return to our home and where we will be with him forever. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is where it's all going. This is where it's all going. This is where our peace is found. Peace beyond Israel. This is where our peace is found. We fix our eyes on eternity, and we say, my peace is may come here in moments, but my peace is secure in heaven where I will be dwelling with God. Micah 5.4 tells us, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. In closing, if you're here or online and you are one of those who immediately feel resentment towards this passage because of your experiences around family, consider yourself blessed. Because what you have has been given to you in order to create in you a deeper and more expressive conviction that this is not your home and your future home is where your true blessing lay. You are not less than Remember that you have a good father who does not trample on his children with needless burdens and demands. He has fixed a place for you in heaven where all peace will culminate into an eternal weight of glory. For those of us here or online who have been given much and we see tangibly the blessing of God in our lives, where does your hope lay today? Do your blessings keep you comfortable or do they tell you persistently point you to the greater reality that is yours in Jesus? Know that you have an enemy who wants to steal that joy from you and keep you satisfied with what, you can, be, what can be had in this life. 
guard against the idea that this world is your home, your family is your blessing, but it is only a signpost to point you beyond your own imagination. Praise be to God. We're going to put this into action now as the spiritual family of God, and we're going to invite you to the table. God has invited us to his table. Jesus has made a way. He has fixed a seat at his family's table. He's reserved it for you. And you get to come to the family table, and you get to feast, and you get to rejoice, and you get to come and you get to say, this is mine forever. It is my hope fixed in heaven. Today I can believe it and I can receive it in faith that one day I will experience it in fullness. And so we're going to invite you to the table, to my left and to my right. As you feel led and you want to get up and you want to take communion, families come and do that together. Friends come, share in communion together, but please be mindful of each other and just a, uh, a remaining socially distant today otherwise. This is Jesus' blood shed for you, his body broken for you. Let's taste, let's take, let's receive again.